episode 214, Breaking Kayfabe with Adam and Barry. Barry, this is a very special edition of Breaking Kayfabe. Ask me why. Why is this edition so special, Jeff? Well, it's a special edition because at the time that the good folks are hearing this special edition of Breaking Kayfabe, episode 214, Barry Rhodes will be on the road. Did I say Rhodes? Barry Rose. Rose. Who are you? What are you? Right. Is on the road back to Plymouth meeting from Greater Loot, Florida. Yes. The latest fan fest is over. Oh, the memories we have, Barry. I'm sure somebody did something inappropriate. It was probably Neely J. He probably ran around the lobby of the hotel naked, you know, something like that, or hugging and kissing somebody with his tongue. What was your favorite memory of the fan fest that hasn't happened as we're recording this yet, but will have happened by the time the people listen to this? Oh, it's it's the guy that we always say, the unnamed guy that consumes too many edibles and then drools Ooh, and, yeah. and is looking for threesomes. I'm sure there was a story there. <laughs> you know what I love about this fan fest? It's the sure. way that Dave Penzer just was with his money was so free. Here, here, I'll buy drinks for everybody. I'm <laughs> buying this entire cable's dinner. Uh, Barry, uh, this guest uh, needs a ride home. Here, here's here's a couple 20s. Uh, n- no expense spared Penzer. That's his new nickname. Yeah. This is that this this sounds like the best fan fest ever, Jeff. <laughs> That's exactly what are the right. odds of that actually happening? Not it won't happen at all. Absolutely <laughs> will not happen. So. so anyway, this particular edition of Breaking Gay Fabe will feature some segments that we put in the bank, if you will. Yes, pre-recorded segments, top ten list galore, Florida man, all that kind of stuff, but still stuff for you, the listener, to enjoy. Because Barry, if we're nothing, we are what? We're givers. We're givers. We are givers, Barry. So on this special edition of Breaking Cave with Adrian Barry, we are going to April 15th, 1983. Now, I'm going to say the rings of all Japan, but before you go, oh, God, it's a fucking Japanese match again. No, no. Dan Hansen versus, oh, the Funker. Terry Funk. Barry, I know you're a fan of the Funker. Huge fan of Terry Funk. He's like, I would say he's my second favorite professional wrestler, but you know, if I it, it, it's such a that's kind of like this gray area for me. Billy Robinson will always be, but with that, you know, when I stop and think about it, I've been watching Terry Funk for any. You know, I guess he's he's done at this stage, but at, you know, a couple of years ago he was still working. So we Damn able clear Billy Robinson and Swayze all in their primes, yeah. hanging by their fingertips from a cliff. Who you who you saving? I am saving. Uh... I'm I had a, Jeff. I can't answer that question because I'm I'm tempted to give you one name and then I'm like fuck. I can't do that to the you know like that's wrong. I can't do that. All that's right. Besides topic. that match, which is a uh, <laughs> uh, it's not a sixty minute expose uh, or, or or show of what a great wrestling match. But this is just a kick ass brawl, Barry. Am I right? And that's the best way to look at it is that it, this is a kick ass brawl between two guys that are the best of friends. Absolutely. Yeah. They. Just throw them down. There's a bloodletting that goes on here, I'll just say, for you juice freaks. Uh, there is copious blood in this match. So besides all that, we're going to offer up our choices. Top 10 worst. Oh. Top 10 worst James Bond villains. Ooh. Yes, No Time to Die. Currently in theaters. Have not seen it yet. Got to talk to Mrs. Baldron about that, by the way. The yeah. last thing that we're going to offer for you, Barry, another top 10 list. Because like I said, this is stuff we put in the bank. Top 10 breakfast cereals, Barry. And I have to say, the number one choice, a little controversial as far as I'm concerned. Yep, grape nuts should never be number one, Jeff. That's you true. And I have you ever eaten that. a pine cone? Some parts right. of it are delicious. Yeah. Who who in the listening audience does not remember the great Yule Gibbons? Wow, that is a dated reference. <laughs> so how about we discuss our match of the week, our match of the week, as I said, April 15th, 1983, in the rings of all Japan, we are talking Stan Hansen, the bad man from Borger, Texas. He's taken on the Funker. Barry, tell the folks what you thought of this match. Yeah, this was a, uh, I mean, so you you do have, you got Terry Funk, and I could watch Terry Funk's worst match ever, and I have no idea what that is or where that took place. I would assume maybe in uh, the WWF. What, what, didn't we just mention recently that he had a match in XPW? So, well, you know, there that's you go. true. But I never saw that match. I just saw the <laughs> highlights as the young man was being led to the ring by uh, by Rob Black, as they referred to him. But uh, I, I could watch, you know, I could just watch Terry Funk all day long. It wouldn't matter to me. 
who he's working with. Certainly, you know, he's going to have better opponents. But Stan Hansen is a great opponent, really, on a couple of different levels. First off, Terry was the guy that essentially brought Stan to professional wrestling. Terry and Dory were really his early mentors. He started in West Texas, where I believe he was from. And they have a friendship. They've got a friendship, which you can see he was instrumental in getting him into Florida in 1973. So these guys both revered in Japan. At this stage, Terry Funk is a living legend in Japan. I would say by 83, Stan Hansen is kind of, he's building his legend. Would that, that would be fair, right, in 83? That's a fair and valid point. You'd yeah, be so- 100% correct, Barry. Ah, check. So he is, uh, so he's building it, but you put these two together and, and Terry could go and, you know, with Hanson, to me, it's almost scary. There's a couple of moments during this match. There is, you know, take out the clothesline aspect of it, which Hanson looks like he was always going to kill somebody with the clothesline, but there's a, a part of the match where Terry Funk is on the mat and Hanson is just laying him into Terry's face. And I'm, you know, I, I swear I'm seeing him connect. And maybe they are, but at the same time, I I know that Stan has the ultimate respect for Terry. So it just, this is a solid match, really start to finish. It's a little bit crazy. I did like the ending and I got to tell you, uh, spoiler again, this is 38 years old, this match. So if I'm spoiling it, I apologize, but Dory Funk Jr. comes in the ring at the end of the match. And quite frankly, it's rare to ever see Dory this animated. Some of those punches he's throwing and that forearm. He throws a forearm to Stan Hansen that looks very similar to what you saw Brian Danielson and uh, Suzuki do on Rampage a couple of weeks back. They are just laying them in. So great match, though, Jeff. I would say if you're looking for a great example of a Stan Hansen match, this would definitely be it with Terry Funk. They're all great examples of a great Terry Funk match. Not exactly Misawa Kobashi. Uh, If you're looking for a great technical match, no. If you're looking for a match that is, let's just say, under 15 minutes that just involves blood and guys beating the living hell out of one another and brawling all over the ring, and uh, this is the match. But let's talk about, you You mentioned how the guys were legends in the ring, and, and they definitely are, but the worship by the Japanese fans for Terry Funk. Holy crap, yes. Terry. I yep. mean, you know, I've said before, I always felt like, the Japanese fans really thought that that more so even than Dory, that Terry was a cowboy. He was a cowboy straight out of the movies that had walked into their building and was going out there and just fighting the bad guys, you know, just like in a a, a John Wayne or a Clint Eastwood Western or or somebody like that. And they literally worshiped the guy. And at the end of the the end of the match, as Terry is going back to the dress room and Dory and the some of the young boys are helping Terry back to the back. They literally rush him, and I don't, I don't want to make this too exaggerated, but it's kind of the way that, like, in the movie A Hard Day's Night, you see the fans go after the Beatles. That's the way the Japanese fans are going after Terry Funk. They worship the guy, and he's like he's like a pop star, you know? I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain just how incredibly over he is in this match. Let's talk about, to me, besides everything else, my favorite part of the match is the expressions on Terry's face. You know, like uh, there's a, a, a point in the match where Stan wraps the, uh, he brings the the bull rope into the ring. He wraps it around Terry's neck and he he hangs him on the ring ropes. And Terry is doing, he like starts rolling his eyes back in his head and he's sticking his tongue out. And like, like just like he's dying right there, you know? And it's it's great. It's hilarious. It's realistic. As weird as it is to include all those three things, it's true. They all go together, Bear. Yeah, it, it's they do. And uh, you're right, too. You know, they, that's what I've always liked about Japanese wrestling as well, is that these guys were, you know, Japanese wrestlers, or I should say wrestling in Japan, because it wasn't Japanese wrestlers, they were always put on a different pedestal than anything that occurred in the U.S. And in the U.S., it was always treated as, a wink-wink type of form of sports entertainment. You know, even in the days before kayfabe was broken, newspaper columnists were still always writing these very sarcastic and just rude on many different levels regarding professional wrestling. And in Japan, 
it's always been completely different. The journalists over there respect wrestling, but the fans viewed wrestlers, and it was different than the way that we do, in the sense that a guy like Hulk Hogan, extremely popular and idolized, but idolized primarily by a, a younger set, you know, a, a children or, or teens or maybe even preteens. And over in Japan, it's completely different. People idolizing Terry Funk aren't just young boys or young girls. There's middle-aged men. There's senior citizens that are, are doing everything they can to be able to touch Terry Funk. And that's what I like, the way that the culture in Japan embraces professional wrestling and always has. Yeah, and you know, I, I was talking before we started recording is as Terry is going back to the dressing room, and please don't just stop the match when the match is over. Watch the yes. spectacle of Terry being led back to the dressing room yep. because, and this is very, very old school, the people trying to just touch Terry and Terry's bleeding. He blades, I guess, the side of his ear, which is just like at one point, like, wow. And another point is like, Ugh. and the blood is flowing. And it's like, uh, I, I can remember as a kid going to the matches and you'd see the people at the end of the night, if somebody had bled in the main event, they'd go up and they'd have like their, their uh, ticket stub or they'd have their, uh, program and they'd be dipping it in the blood you know as grisly as that sounds that that was something that was fairly commonplace oh yeah this guy blood i want to get some of his blood on my program and that is what happens here like they're trying to touch terry to get some of the blood either on their piece of paper or, or whatever but i say that and it's not like it was not that disgusting it's like sort of a fascinating spectacle that these people love this guy so much and I really, as I sit there and started thinking about it, I, I wanted to reach out to some Japanese historians and ask them, I wonder if anyone, you know, and there, there have been a lot of great, and I'm talking strictly American here. I'm not talking about the Japanese guys like Anoki or Baba or something like that. But of all the, ja uh, the American guys that went over there that got over huge, you mentioned Hogan, certainly, uh, you know, and different guys that went over there, whether it's, you know, like, uh, you know, Vader, I know was over huge. Kenny Omega was over huge, whether you want to know that or not. It's true. He was over huge. <laughs> was anybody ever over as much as Terry was to the Japanese fans? Because even somebody like Dick Byer, the destroyer, he lived there. So, yeah. of course, he was over to a certain extent. But I think his was more of a respect, whereas Terry was just like a worship, you know? That's probably there. Even Dory, too. I think Terry eclipsed Dory, obviously, over in Japan. But I think there are some guys. But with Terry, it was different. I think Bruiser Brody also fell yes, into that that's category. that's fair. Yeah, he would have been, yeah. been close. He would have been close. And I, I, think, I think, you know, this is that, this is the legend of Bruiser Brody dying, you know, still at a, as a, at a young age. I don't want to say at his peak, but he still had many more years left in professional wrestling, I believe. And I think that also heightens uh, his attractiveness to the Japanese wrestling fans. He's like the Elvis in a sense, kind of like Ricky Dozan was maybe for fans of the 60s. You know, Ricky Dozan, the father of Japanese wrestling and was killed. I want to say it was 63, but I'm not sure. And there's a legend about him. And I think with Brody, you get that also. As far as a living legend, that's probably Terry Funk, though. So, Barry, fun for you on yet another top 10 list. I know you love doing these. However, Barry, this one, not food-related. Barry, you're aware that there is a new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, out, which I haven't seen yet, and I can't friggin' believe it because I'm usually there every opening night. Uh, I'm guessing you have not yet seen the new uh, Daniel Craig, James Bond, No Time to Die. I, Jeff, I don't think I've seen a James Bond movie in the last, maybe the last decade. So no, I have not seen it's it. It's extremely, extremely disappointing for me to hear. However, you're aware of the James Bond series. And at some point, <laughs> some of them, yeah. I'm guessing, okay. I'm a little aware of it. Yes, I'm a little aware of it. So, yes. uh, I guess if you, uh, you say, fuck James Bond, I don't care about him. Uh, you're not going to want to listen to this portion of the episode. But however, what we're going to offer for you today is the top 10 most ridiculous Worst James Bond villains ranked from right. 10 to 1. Are you ready? Let's, yeah, and hopefully I can stay along with this. Because again, if if this is a villain from the last few years, I may not know. But uh, if we're going back to I the gotta say, days, I think there's only one from the last few years. All right. Uh, so let me, let me just ask you, as I initially ask you that question and you sit there and you close those Barry Rose blue eyes, who to you is the worst James Bond villain that you can think of? Uh... Off the top of my head, I don't know if I've got 
if you pointed out that there may be something different, but off the top of my head, I don't know if uh, there's nobody that you went. Oh fuck, this is you just know what ridiculous. Moonraker was. I mean, Moonraker in general was just a pretty stupid movie, but that was Jaws. Richard Keel, right? Well, funny you mention that, Barry, because they're at number ten. Ah, look at so that Moonraker. We have Jaws. Now it's funny because you know people of a certain age they tend to like the Bond that they grew up with. I love Sean Connery. He's always James Bond to me. I love the Daniel Craig James Bond. I'm not a big fan of Roger Moore as James Bond because I think he took that a little more, it made it a little more campy, a little, little more humor in the uh, movies, which is, is fine, except it completely was not what, uh, you know, the original writer, Ian Fleming, based the character on. He was, he was a fucking assassin that worked for the government, you know? So that being said, I know there are people that grew up in that time frame that are maybe like 10 years younger than us, Barry, who think Roger Moore was the complete shit and, and he was everything James Bond should be. People that may be a little bit younger than that, maybe they loved, you know, uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan or, or Timothy Dalton. And then people that are even younger, I don't know why those people are listening to our show, quite frankly, maybe think Daniel Craig is the only James Bond and they won't even consider anybody else as James Bond. Well, you get a little surprise for you there. Spoiler alert, there's gonna be a new James Bond within the next few years. So, but starting off on this list, which is James Bond in Toto, that's a word we've used recently. And we wow, like that. yeah. Number 10, Jaws from Moonraker. So let's talk about what's wrong with Jaws, okay? It's a cool gimmick, the, the steel teeth, but it was not played up as a killer. It was played up like as a comedy routine, you know, especially in Moonraker. The Spy Who Loved Me, he was in that. And he was played more as a killer and being ruthless. By the time he got to Moonraker, he was a joke. He ends up with the, you know, the little girl uh, with the, uh, not little girl, like the small woman who was, you know, she had the pigtails and the big glasses and stuff like that. And that's who he found love with at the end of the movie. But you're right. Moonraker was a bad James Bond movie. And it was really done to capitalize on the success of Star Wars. All of a sudden they had James Bond go out to Spaceberry. So what do you think? You said, you said, Jaws to you is, is a bad villain for Bond. Just a bad villain because I, what I remember about it was how cartoonish it was, how unrealistic, and it just none of it made any sense to me. And I should say, too, I actually liked Roger Moore, but I liked him for the reasons that you just stated. When I got into James Bond initially, it was in the, the mid-1970s, and, and Roger Moore at that stage was James Bond. And I went to see Live and Let Die for my birthday that year. And I, uh, me and a group of friends went to see live and let die, which immediately then became my favorite James Bond movie, right? Uh, the beautiful Jane Seymour. And I do like the villains in that movie, but well, let's just say uh -oh. further down the list, we may see someone from that movie. All right. Uh, or two anyway, but yeah, it was fun, but it's one of those things I think in looking back on it, it's kind of like you go, eh, there was some uncomfortableness uh, about the plot line. Uh, people look at it now with the benefit of, let's be honest, 50 years of friggin' hindsight, and they see racial components in it, that, you know, uh, the bad guy is a villain. Well, guess what? You know, there have been bad guys that are villains in movies and white guys. It's just in this particular episode of the James Bond series, the, the lead heel was a black guy hey, by the great Yafet Kodo, who we... We yeah, fucking love. Exactly. We loved him in this and in Midnight Run. But anyway, Jeffrey Holder too was in that movie. I think. yes, yes. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, so number ten was Jaws from Moonraker. Barry number nine from Diamonds Are Forever. It's Ernst Stavro Blofeld, Willard White. Remember that? This is Willard White speaking. He had the yep. voice box and and he was living up in the the tower of the Vegas hotel and he had taken over. It was kind of a play on. Uh, with a Howard Hughes, where it was a guy that no one ever saw, but he uh, he ran the hotel and all this uh, all this different kind of business. So the uh, the villain Blofeld, who had been in like four or five Bond movies, yes. but you'd never seen his face. Now all of a sudden you see his face. The actor that played this role was a guy named Charles Gray. Charles Gray had also played a supporting role in the Bond movie uh, You Only Live Twice. And which was let, in Japan. let me also point out, Charles Gray has a role in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, there you go. Yeah. But he was seen as uh, probably not quite as good a Blofeld as like your Donald Pleasance, uh, your Maximilian Schell, who I think did the voiceover for Blofeld in one of the movies where you never saw his face. 
So uh, Charles Gray, though, you know, he was a fine actor, did a lot of great movies. was not well thought of uh, for his performance. And, and quite frankly, Diamonds Are Forever. I love Sean Connery, but most people think Diamonds Are Forever is the uh, least effective uh, Bond movie of, of the Connery Bond films. Uh, that being said, I still love it. Number eight from GoldenEye. Oh, Barry, how much do we love the names of some of the women in the Bond films? Uh, of course, Pussy Galore from Goldfinger. Yep. But in GoldenEye, the lead female villain was Xenia on a top. And her gimmick was that uh, yeah, that's a great name. I'm sure her parents, her parents, Mr. and Mrs. On a top were very proud of her. Uh, yeah. But uh, her gimmick was that she would literally put the body scissors on them and squeeze the life out of people. She was like a contract killer for the, the guy that was the lead villain, who I think might've been Sean Bean. Now that I think about it, who played a, uh, a double O agent who went rogue. But anyway, his lead henchman was Xenia on a top who, uh, would squeeze the life out of those that she was ordered to. And uh, it was a little a beautiful woman. I'm trying to think of who the woman was. Uh, Lou, while we're talking here, could you uh, look up Goldeneye and tell us? Oh, I can tell you right now. Is, is it Fomka Jansen? Yes, sir. Aha! Every once in a while, I, I throw one uh, candle into the wind and, and get a response. So I was right on Fomka Jansen. It was a beautiful woman, by the way, Barry. Yeah, she was in, was, was that Species that she was in, which was the horror franchise, had a couple of movies in the 90s? Lou, yes. is it? It's, okay, yeah. What yeah. was it? Or was that yeah. Natasha Henstridge? Oh. Species. Look at Lou coming up with the, See? Uh, yeah. yeah. That's why we pay him the big money. Or yeah. at least Brian pays him the big money. Yes, so, sir. number seven from A View to a Kill. Now, here, I have to say the actor that is named here, one of my all-time favorite actors. Christopher Walken is just, yeah. he's fucking legendary, okay? Max Zorin, the bleach blonde megalomaniac billionaire guy who, uh, you know, wanted to... The only good thing about that movie was the scene at the top of the Golden Gate Bridge where they're, they're fighting on top of the... Roger Moore, by this time, he was about the same age as you and I were, or you and I are. So, you know, neither one of us are going to be uh, mistaken for James Bond at this point, Barry. But uh, that was Roger Moore in View to a Kill, uh, which is, to me, the worst Roger Moore James Bond films were View to a Kill <laughs> and Octopussy. Everybody think. says that about A View to a Kill, that it was the worst Roger Moore. And some would even say it was the worst Bond movie ever made, taking out like Casino Royale and, you know, stuff like that. But Well, uh, there's one more we haven't got right. to. But I actually liked, I liked A View to a Kill, and I'll tell you what I liked about it. I did like Christopher Walken. I liked Grace Jones in the movie. And it's got, I mean, that theme song, you know, that's, that's Duran Duran there, buddy. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I'm trying to think what was, uh, Grace Jones's name, her character's name was something like, uh, D-Day or, or yeah. something like that. She had a, yeah. she had a great name, but no, yeah, she was, uh, she was very effective in her role, but they, I guess the feeling was that Christopher Walken a little over the top yep. as Max Zorin. So next number six, Barry, I promise you, we were going to get back to live and let die. All right. Oh, it's, I'm trying to think of the guy's name was Julius Harris was his name. He played Teehee, the guy with the one arm. Remember he yeah. had, he was going towards uh, Roger Moore with the pinchers on his uh, artificial uh, hand. And that, that's how he was going to kill him with the pinchers. And I think that Julius Harris was the same guy that was in commando, if I'm correct. No, was, that was different. No. That was different. That was, uh, I know you're thinking about, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh God. Uh, keep talking. And I'll think of the guy's name. Cause now, he was, he was he was in Predator too. That guy. No, so you're thinking of Bill, Bill Duke. That Bill, Bill Duke. Duke. Yeah. Julius Harris, if I'm correct, was the guy that Arnold got on the plane in Commando, and he wound up elbowing him in the face and then breaking his neck. I'm pretty sure that's Julius Harris. I think. All right, we're gonna have. But to Bill have, Duke, uh, though, I know who Bill Duke is. Absolutely, what a Bill great Duke's actor! Great, Bill great Duke. actor. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He always yep. plays the uh, the villain, and uh, he was great in Predator too. He was a yeah. guy, you know, like. Uh, it was in the bushes. You see him up there. I see him up there. This guy's shaving with no shaving cream. That's right. Cutting yes. his face. Yeah. But, okay, number five, Barry from Tomorrow Never Dies, Dr. Kaufman, who was the guy that had the Joseph Mengele-esque medical bag with all the instrument of torture. He was in the movie for like five minutes, and uh, it was the guy. Now I'm going to try to think of the actor's name. He was the guy in Fast Times at Ridgemont High that taught the biology class. Ray Walston? No, no, oh, no, no. Vincent Not, Vincent Schiavelli. That's the guy, yes. And yeah. he played Dr. Kaufman, who uh, was sent to torture Bond, and Bond turns the table on him. And 
to me, I, I don't think he belongs in the list. First of all, he's only in the movie for five friggin' minutes. But I liked him in this. And and then when you know Bond turns the tables on him, he ends up becoming a coward and he begs for his life. And then you know Bond kills him and stuff. But shouldn't be on the list just because he wasn't in the movie long enough. And for what he was in the movie, I thought he was pretty decent. Did you see Tomorrow Never Dies? I think I did because I do remember him in a Bond movie. So I must have. He was he was a great actor. Yes. Uh, most very people, unique look. Very. He looked. He was in. He was also in Ghost. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. He, was the, he was the one that sway. Of course, you go back to Swayze films. Of course, I do. Yes. But uh, uh, no, I liked him. I and I think I've told this story. I met him and his wife. His wife at the time was uh, Elise Beasley, who was on Moonlighting, and uh, she did. She was a character actress, and they were at a Ralph's in. I think it was right off of Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and I went in on a Friday night. I don't know, 10 o'clock at night. And he was there checking out and they were there together. And he's just a casual guy. And I looked over at him and I smiled and I said, hey. And he looked at me and he went, hey, <laughs> like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so next, Barry, number four from Spectre. Ernst Stavro Blofeld, played by the great, I'm trying to think, because they don't know his name. Barry was a guy, he was in the Tarantino war film that he won, he won like the Academy Award for. Oh, the uh, oh, he's great. The guy who was also in Django and uh, yes, uh, Christoph Waltz. Yes, Christoph Waltz. Boy, he's right, great. Right now, before yeah. you said that, there was some guy listening to this going, "It's fucking Christoph Waltz." Right. <laughs> but so what anyway, great actor. Uh, yeah. In Spectre, he was actually in Spectre, and I think he was the one in the one after Spectre. And his famous line from from the movie is, "It's me, James, the author of all your pain." Uh, that was his line uh, where he apparently had been behind all these attempts on James Bond's life and stuff like that. But the reason he makes this list is because of not his performance or anything like that, which I thought he was very good in the role. It's the storyline and the angle they took where it ends up where he's James Bond's long lost brother. It was very Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. And this was, you know, 15 years after they had done Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. And it was a horrible, horrible take uh, because other than that, I like Spectre. The opening scene to Spectre that takes place in Mexico on, um, what is it they have there that, uh, it's not Halloween, it's the one that's after, it's like the Day of the Dead or something like that, where everyone's in costume. The one in Mexico? Yeah. Yeah, um, Dio. Dio Muerte or something like that. exactly. Yeah. And so uh, so anyway, the, the opening scene of that movie is fantastic because Bond is, chasing someone across a rooftop as the buildings are beginning to collapse behind them uh, because they've been like, uh, you know, had uh, they've been sabotaged and Christoph Waltz was fantastic. But then when they got to the part where it's like, Oh yeah, I'm your long lost brother. We were separated by our parents. And uh, I just like, really now, if, you know, if Mike Myers had never done Austin powers, maybe we'd go like, Oh, okay. That's kind of an interesting plot twist. But because that movie coming out and had not one, but two sequels, there were three friggin' Austin Powers movies. And now it was just like post Austin Powers, that plot line is completely fucking ridiculous. Did you see this movie, Bear? I think so. I don't, okay. I, yeah, that one, it doesn't ring a bell. So, number three, and here again, I disagreed with the one from Tomorrow Never Dies. And I, I really disagree with this one because I loved this heel character in a movie that Barry already referenced. It was Jeffrey Holder as Baron, is it Samedy? Is that how you pronounce it? Or do you I remember? think it was Baron Zametti, and you yeah. know who, and this this has a wrestling tie-in. Yeah, um, the Godfather, whatever other name, he's worked under a million names. He actually worked, I think, for Global in Texas underneath this gimmick. He oh, did really? This gimmick. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was, to me, he was like one of the best things about the movie. You know, that <laughs> that laugh of his was. <laughs> and yeah, it was so chilling. He was the seven up guy, remember? Yeah, yeah. And then the, there's a scene where they're in the graveyard and Bond shoots at him, takes out part of his head. And the guy turns in, with his eyes and looks up at the top of his skull that's been shot off as a great fucking yeah. visual. Yeah. And then uh, spoiler alert for a movie that's probably fucking uh 40 years old or 50 years, years old. old. Yes, yeah. Right. At the end of the movie, you see him on the front of the train that, that Bond is on. And he, you know, does that, that chilling, haunting laugh again. The only disappointing part is they never brought the guy back in another Bond movie. 
because that would have been fucking awesome. Yeah. I was a big fan. Jeffrey Holder, too, was a uh, yeah. he was also in Annie, if you remember. He Legendary was, dancer on Broadway. too. That's right. Legendary dancer. He was in Annie, was the seven up guy for years, had a very it was the laugh, a very commanding presence yeah. when he do it. But how can you not love a movie that puts Jeffrey Holder and Yafet Kodo alongside <laughs> the beauty of Jane Seymour in her prime? Right. Julius you gotta Harris. love that movie. So. Julie, exactly, Julius Ray. And Paul McCartney doing the theme song. I mean, come that's, on, people. That's right. So, uh, yeah, and the other thing, uh, Jeffrey Holder, the scene where you first see, or when he first meets Bond, where Bond is, like, walking through the woods and he comes across this house, and Jeffrey Holder, is, as Baron Samadhi is, playing a flute, and he goes, good morning, how are you? And he's like, he's saying it so friendly, but there's such a sinister undertone to it, you know? He was, I don't know how the fuck he made this list. Anyway, uh, by the way, this is by, uh, this list I didn't mention was from ScreenRant.com. So number two, this one I definitely agree with. From the man with the golden gun, it's Hervé Villachez as Knickknack. Barry, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I saw it. I wasn't a gigantic fan at the because Hervey, you know, let's be honest, he's always going to be tattoo, right? There's it no it it and it was really this kind of goofy, it was a comic. Yeah, I don't know. I just I didn't connect, and I think partly it's I couldn't see past the fact that it was tattoo on screen. Well, and you know, the other thing is he was really good during the part of the movie where he was basically the play-by-play guy for the duel between Roger Moore and Christopher Lee, where he's going. Oh, he's not in that room. Where do you think he is, Mr. Bond? He was very good. But at the end of the movie where he's this, let's be honest, a little person trying to stab James Bond and James Bond puts him in a suitcase. And then at the end of the movie, as they're doing the go homes for the movie, you see Bond has hung him, uh, not literally, but he has him hanging like in a, in the crow's nest, like in a net, you know, and that's where he's, you know, because he's, he's knocked off Christopher Lee. And it was to me, really devaluing what had been kind of an interesting villain up to that point. And I think that's why he's on the list. Not, not because, well, okay, maybe it's partly because he was, you know, people thought of him as tattoo from fantasy Island, but he had been at sort of an interesting sidekick, you know, to Christopher Lee at that point. But then when you like, take him and put him in a suitcase and he's going, let me out of here, let me out of here. It, it just, it really like, I think it was kind of stupid because it kind of devalued the character to me. Okay. Number one, Barry, you said you thought View to a Kill was the worst Bond film. And well, Barry, yeah, case, just, just so I'm, that's what everybody says. I no, enjoyed it, but everybody says that. Because most polls, I'll have you know, Mr. Rose, will yes. tell you that the worst Bond film, and I'm going to just say this, first 45 minutes of this movie, I really liked. It was really good. And then we had the appearance, oh, Barry, of Madonna. Oh, uh, and it turned to shit and it wasn't because of her, but just her being there is what I associate with how shitty the movie die another day turned and the character of Gustav Graves. Okay. Who was a North Korean, the son of like a general in North Korea who took some of the family money, went to Cuba, had plastic surgery and turned into a British guy. It was completely fucking right. ridiculous. <laughs> and then they had, uh, where Bond is being chased and he's got like the invisible car. I I like the Pierce Brosnan movies. To me, my own opinion, he's the third best Bond behind Connery and Daniel Craig. And then Brosnan, I, I like his movies. This is definitely the worst of the Brosnan movies. And perhaps along with View to a Kill, the worst of the, of the two Bond films, I think. Yeah, so, it, you know, it is going to be Madonna. It, it, Madonna's not... Like she did the movie Desperately Seeking Susan, which I, I really enjoy that movie. She was great in the League of Their Own. Uh, yes, that's true. Yeah, so she is, but she carries around baggage that she's just really unlikable, which professionally she is. and personally. Absolutely. There's <laughs> nothing about her that you can see that she's just really unlikable. And you would think at some point, you know, somebody close to her, her managers, whatever, would say, maybe just change the attitude a little bit. She drags down a lot of films. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm on the fence with that one. I agree with you. I don't think that she did anything that would cause me to hate the movie. But the movie, this, that movie's really stupid. I, I think that's what we're looking yeah, at. Yeah, and, and the first, pardon me, about first 45 minutes or so, 
Bond goes into North Korea to, uh, I think he wanted to obtain some diamonds or something like that. Or he wanted to buy something that was being sold by this general in North Korea. And then he gets captured and they show him being interrogated and tortured and how he has to survive it. And then he escapes. And that part of it, I, I was fairly interested in. He escapes to Hong Kong, goes to uh, Cuba where he meets Halle Berry who does the famous scene where she comes out of the water. Right. Just like, uh, what the fuck was that in the very first James Bond movie? Um, Ursula uh, Andrus. Ursula Andrus. Thank you, Luke. Yeah. Uh, and it was like literally the exact same shot. And Halle Berry is a beautiful woman and, yeah. you know, stuff. And that was good. But wow, once they got to Iceland, the movie just took a complete dump as if someone had had Ethiopian food. That was for you, Joe Christie. So, you know, a, a horrible Bond film, Gustav Graves, the number one worst and most ridiculous Bond villain of all time as ranked by ScreenRant.com. Barry, it has been a hot tick, a hot moment since we brought up Florida Man or Not. Oh, yes. Pulling this one out of the bullpen to come in for relief here on Breaking k about it. And Barry, are you ready to go, Barry? I have not three. I'll give you two stories today. All right. Very excited for this. Are you ready? Let's do it. Story number one, landlord accused of killing two tenants. He, quote, handled the eviction his way. Mm. A homeowner accused of shooting three live-in tenants after an argument over unpaid rent told police he didn't want to go through eviction proceedings and wanted to handle things, quote, his way, a prosecutor told the judge on Wednesday. Arnaldo Lozano Sanchez made statements about the victims not paying rent and that he, quote, was certainly upset about it. Florida or not? Well, th this uh, I'm going to say I'm going to say this certainly could be Florida. Also, you mentioned the the landlord was Hispanic. Certainly, South Florida. And there I may be Hispanics say. in South Florida. I there cannot confirm. Be. Just a few. There's just a few. Actually, the entire state. So, a lot of Hispanics in in the state of Florida. Could be, I'm going to, I have not heard this story before. Sounds like a really strict landlord, too. I'm yeah. going to. You're, yeah. you're not paying your rent? I'm going to cap your ass. That's, you're that's dead. Tough, so man. that's, yeah, usually it's eviction. But in this case, it's, uh, yeah, it's different. I'm going to roll the dice and say, not the state of Florida. You would be 100% check. Correct. Las Vegas, Nevada. Woohoo! You're one for one. Let's see if we can keep the streak going. Mr. Rose, as I bring up the next story, let's see here. The headline, parents must pay $30,441 for getting rid of their son's porn stash. A judge has ordered a Western or a couple to pay $30,000 to their son for getting rid of his pornography collection. Barry, just think of how much your parents would have owed you. Ahem, anyway. Yeah. He said they had no, the, the defendant said they had no right to throw out his collection of films, magazines, and quote, other items. Barry, it leads me to believe what were the other items? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the gentleman, by the way, I just love the fact that the guy's last name was working. Well, if he's got that big, a, <laughs> that big a pornography collection, something tells me he was not, not working, working or he was working at something else. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, and then they called in an expert who evaluated uh, the, the amount of the stash. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the expert, Jeff? I know. <laughs> we have a, name. I think a couple guys that are in our group, actually. But All right. We need so, to reach out to the expert, Jeff. We need this guy on as a guest. <laughs> so, Barry, Florida or not? Oh, this, this raises a lot of questions besides the fact that there is a, a porno expert who can value your collection. That seems like it. And this this is a guy I think that was either hired by a lawyer or the court. So I think that's great. And the fact that somebody has, quote unquote, a porno collection, which doesn't live on a computer is also really interesting. But as you said, other items. And I think that's what a lot of it is. I do want to speak to the expert. We do need to get this guy on as a guest. I am going to roll the dice. I'm going to say this did not take place in Florida, though, again, certainly could have. I'm going to say it did not. Grand Haven, Michigan. What? I need to find out where Grand Haven is, because it's apparently a, a large uh, stash of porn that may have been uh, recently dumped there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Road yes, trip. Here, 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Apparently, the uh, the gentleman in question with the former collection, having moved from, uh, uh, he was in the midst of a divorce, moved back with mom and dad, and then was heading to Muncie, Indiana. Muncie, Indiana, Barry, I believe the home of Ball State University, most famous grad from Ball State. Uh, I know who it is, too, and I, why can't I? David I Letterman. Team? Oh, there you go. Yeah, Who yeah, may yeah. or may not have a porn collection, but that's another story for another yeah. time. Barry, I know if there's one thing that you never get tired of talking about, it's, no, it's not that. It's, oh, damn. I know, you were hoping we are going to go there, but no. We're going food talk. So, Barry Rose, let me ask you. It's a lovely morning at Casa de Rose. You're looking up in the cabinet. You're going to get some cereal and have a little bit of cereal for breakfast. Barry Rose, what is your go-to cereal, my man? Absolutely. So here's the funny thing, and it's not even funny, Jeff. Uh, it's uh-huh. absolutely not funny at all, but I eat the same breakfast seven days a week, and I do that. I eat fruit, yogurt, and granola seven days a week. With that being said, I love cereal, and I'll actually will have cereal for lunch. Sometimes as, as the munchies hit around 9 o'clock at night, I'll go grab a bowl. So I have two go-tos. Grab a, but a bowl? My... Oh, cereal. Oh, bowl of cereal. Oh, I didn't even mean that, but yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So my go-to is going to be Fruity Pebbles, followed up by Cocoa Pebbles. I'm a big Pebbles guy. All righty. So, all right, we're going to be looking at the top 10, as our friends at the top10s.com, oh. top 10 breakfast cereals, Barry. So as we are wont to do, let's start, because they give you 25. Sure. Uh, let's run through some of the ones 11 through 25. Uh, uh, right. Barry, number 25, oh, those golden grams. Tasted okay. honey uh, or tasted weed. I don't know, but I remember the jingle. So, hey, you ever tried Golden Grams? I've tried them. They're not bad, too. You know what I did try that I liked was uh, they released a Golden Grams cereal bar. So kind of like a Rice Krispie treat, but done with Golden Grams. And that was actually really good. That's my favorite way to enjoy cereal, by the way. Mix it with marshmallow. I'm in. So, okay. yes. Yeah, wait, wait till you have to start worrying about the sugar count there. That's all I'm going to say. Oh. oh, Barry, since you mentioned it, jumping ahead to 21, it's Cocoa Pebbles. Mm. How, yeah, Barry, you must be outraged that it's this low. I, I'm outraged. Uh, it's a, it's going to be a lot internal, of things, but you know, just, absolutely. This will be an internal outrage, so I will not be raising my voice and having a tantrum or a meltdown over this, but I love Cocoa Pebbles. I don't, you know, to me, I think it's one of the best cereals. What what I like? Do you ever eat cocoa pebbles, Jeff? Or no? I do not. I have another cocoa that is uh, further up the count that I'll be mentioning at some point. Sure, and it's it's the more well known of the cocoa family, so I get it. What I like about cocoa pebbles is there is actually a really intense chocolate flavor to it. Uh, it's not like half-assed or anything like that. And I do make those Rice Krispie treats, but I use cocoa pebbles. It's almost like eating a chocolate bar, but even better. Number nineteen, Barry. Oh. At your age, you get into a situation every once in a blue moon, you got to dip into the Raisin Bran. Number 19, Raisin Bran. Are you a fan? I'm a fan. I don't eat it because I eat granola for breakfast every day. So constitutionally, Jeff, I'm right on target, right on point. Well, there Uh, you go. There you go. I love raisins, if that helps. But there is a new Raisin Bran, isn't there, where they're dipping the flakes in chocolate now? Uh, I have not heard about that one. There is like Raisin... Raisin Bran, like crunchy or, or yeah, crispy yeah. crunchy. That yeah. one looks better than Raisin Clusters. It's uh, the Raisin Bran Clusters. I've actually, that is really good. I've had that as well. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, jumping up to uh, number, let's see here. 15, Barry. I like Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, I, like I like them better them. than the, the Cocoa Pebbles. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. This, let me never, ever. You fucker. <laughs> Somebody, uh, Kevin Dignam will be happy that you Kevin said that. Kevin Dignam. And then I'll go. I, 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 let me say it this week. Say, Jeff, you're wrong. Jeff, Jeff, you're wrong. You fucker. There, this week, I'll get the credit for the, for the <laughs> There you go. So here's the difference. So, Jeff, are you a like a cheese doodle kind of guy? Do you like those? Cheese doodles? No, what I'm, are the, I'm what are the cheese things. What are they? The, the tiger. Cheetos, thank you. Cheese doodles, Cheetos, whatever. Wow, you had to really dip deep into the brain for Cheetos, huh? I, I don't know. Exactly. So you have two different types. You've got the ones that are the crunchy, harder ones, and then you've got the ones that are puffed, 
Which do you prefer? Well, now, it's interesting you said this because as we speak, someone, I believe it might have been uh, a brother shipper, Michael Ahern, that reposted this uh, from Twitter Super 70 Sports, which is a great Twitter feed, by the way. And the guy that does that uh, particular feed said, if you're somebody that likes the puff uh, or the puffy Cheetos more than the crunchy Cheetos, I got no time for you. I, I 100% agree. Give me the crispy Cheetos over the puff. Now, the wife, the beloved Mrs. Bowdrin, she'll go with the puffy type. But so, I like the crunch. Yeah, and I don't want to knock Mrs. Bowdrin because I think uh-huh. the world of her. Exactly. But I, I'm with you, Jeff. Jeff, you'd be 100% correct. Check. That the crunchy ones also seem to have a stronger flavor. I don't like the texture of the puffy ones that much. And that's the same thing when you get to those cocoa puffs versus cocoa pebbles. The pebbles are a little harder. I think you get a stronger, more intense chocolate flavor. The puffs are the puffs, and I'm not a puff guy. So I'd be curious to see. There is one more cocoa type of cereal that I like. We'll see if it's further up the list. So moving ahead, that was number 15. Uh, Number 14, tricks. Tricks, they're not just for kids. They're for rabbits. (laughs) They're for rabbits. Yeah, tricks all right. I remember I, every commercial when I was sure. Kid. Well, those were fun commercials. That's why you remember it. They were actually a lot of fun. I, I like tricks. It's not a cereal that I'm going to buy and eat. And I don't know the last time that I did. It's I'm going to assume decades. But if somebody put a bowl of tricks in front of me with some 2% milk, yeah, I'd be okay with that. So let me jump up to number 12 now, Barry. I did. This is not the one I was talking about. All right. But I neglected to mention Count Chocula. Mm. which was so back in the day and I, and I happen to notice uh recently on a trip to the old uh, Publix uh that they've reissued them you had your count chocula you had your frankenberry you had your booberry oh were you a fan of any of these three uh, uh, uh cereal brands yeah and they're they're out they're out i think they they released them right around the month before halloween they seem to come out every year i think it's a general mills product and they the marketing's always good. So I know I was in a Target recently and I saw all of them. I like all of them. Blueberry is great because how many other blueberry flavored cereals are there? True. And the strawberry one, Frankenberry, I always thought was good as well. I like the marketing on it a lot. As a kid, I know that, you know, that's the worst thing to to market to kids, but all companies do it. But I was just taken with the packaging. And then when you get the inside the cereal, it was like, fuck, this is awesome. But yeah. Well, yeah. You know, what's funny is uh, talking about how they market things to kids. I can remember growing up when you'd go to look for, you know, what kind of cereal do you want? Does mom, you know, want to get for you and stuff like that? I loved what they were called at the time were sugar pops and uh, sugar smacks with, with, with Diggum, the frog, remember him? And what they did over time, because of course the S word became forbidden. You couldn't give your kids sugar, God forbid. They changed sugar smacks to honey smacks, mm. and they changed sugar pops to corn pops. It's the same friggin' cereal. They just retitled it so that, you know, the consumers wouldn't be freaking out about giving their kids sugar. Guess what? Spoiler alert. You're still giving your kids friggin' sugar. Uh, very a fan of either one of those two? Yeah, the honey smacks I actually like a lot. If I'm correct, they had that at the hotel at, that we do our fan fest at in Lutz. And that's one of the morning cereals, one of the breakfast cereals. And uh, I'm a big fan. I, there's a specific flavor on those honey smacks. And I don't think it's honey. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I really like it. Yeah. Big fan. All right. We're in the top 10 now, Barry. There we go. I got I to gotta be honest with you. I, I'm a little right. disappointed at, you know, in the top 10 for some of their selections. Number 10, Frosted Mini Wheats. No, Are you a fan? A, not a fan. I'm not a fan of Mini Wheats, whether you're frosting them or not. Yeah, uh, I'm going to dispute that. Number nine, oh, an old-time staple berry. Don't eat it as much as I did when I was a kid, but I used to love Apple Jacks. Yeah, Apple Jacks are good. I don't eat them, but I always, I, when I was a kid, that was probably the cereal I ate most as a kid, Apple Jacks. I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah, okay. Number eight, oh, Cheerios. But here again, let me say, when you were a kid, Cheerios was best when you took a little spoonful of sugar and kind of sprinkled it across and then, of course, as you would begin to eat the cereal, when you were finishing up and you'd kind of scrape the bottom of the cereal bowl, you had that little sugar, uh, uh, little thing that had uh, kind of stuck to the bottom of your bowl. So you get like a, literally a spoonful of milk and sugar, you know. 
You know what? I, you know, what I always figure why I've had problems with weight my entire life. Yeah. You know what? I always felt the best way when it came to Cheerios, the best way to have them is you get your bowl, you put your Cheerios in, you add your milk, and then you take this and you, you shove it down the, the garbage compactor <laughs> and flush it totally because Cheerios on their own literally is, I would say it's akin to eating cardboard flavor wise. Why well, I said you got to put the sugar on top. You, you know? do. You got to put a lot of sugar. And I know now there's like honey nut Cheerios and some other ones, but plain Cheerios to me, I was lost. What a horrific tasting cereal. So here at number seven, let me just say, one of the things that just, you know, I just got done talking about how they they marketed uh, cereals back in the day with sugar smacks and uh, sugar pops and stuff like that. Now, Barry, you go into a store and you look at the cereal aisle and they literally have candy yeah. disguised as cereal. At number seven, Reese's Puffs. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right about here's the other thing jeff when was the last time you were in a grocery do you go shopping are you in a grocery i do grocery? go with mrs bowden every weekend it's uh yeah. one of our staples i love going to grocery stores i don't like shopping otherwise but when it's food related of course i love it and if you go now do you remember when we were kids the cereal aisle was maybe six or seven feet of the aisle it's a whole fucking aisle now of like 60 feet like there's so many cereals yeah. Well, and you know what I find has happened in the reverse is you used to literally have an entire aisle of cookies. Yeah. And now I feel that the cookie aisle is way compressed because, you know, you have uh, you, your various uh, uh, Nabisco products and stuff like that. But a lot of the aisle, first of all, you got your your vegan friendly uh, cookies, uh, the ones that don't have uh, what do you call it? it certain Glutin ingredients shit yeah, yeah then you've got your crackers then you got your salt hey, yeah i love saltines i love ritz but those aren't cookies why are those on the cookie aisle this they're not cookies they're yeah. yeah they're crackers i agree with you with that too and let, let's not leave out the keebler elves because those That's guys true. wake up extra early to work and get out these quality products for us so uh what were we talking about what kind of puff reese's was it puffs have you ever tried reese's puffs i have they're all right but at the same time you know what it's not a cereal that I would eat. I love, obviously, we've, we've done episodes, whole episodes on Reese's products, which I love. But the cereal just doesn't fall into it for me. Barry, you'll be happy at number six, your aforementioned Fruity Pebbles. Very happy about that, too. So I like everything about Fruity Pebbles. I like the packaging. I like the product. Again, some butter and some marshmallow. It makes a great treat. And uh, yeah, I can't say enough. And years ago, I, I I remember this too, when my kids were much younger, so it's probably over 10 years ago, there was some sort of contest that Fruity or Cocoa Pebbles was, I think John Cena was involved, which is how I think my son got involved. And you had to cut out the box tops of the cereal to win, you know, it was either a visit from John Cena, a phone call, something like that. And my daughter being the creative one in the family, we probably had six or seven boxes of either fruity or cocoa pebbles. She cut out the front of the box and she made a collage of all these. And it was just, I know I'm not doing it justice, but it was the most like colorful, original artwork you have ever seen. And the last time I saw it, it was still in my basement. So yeah. There you go. So uh, Barry, before we move on, fruity pebbles, of course, I believe yes. inspired by, of course, the great Flintstones cartoon. Yes. Who was your favorite character on the Flintstones? Barney Rubble. Uh, what Barney a, Rubble is an easy choice. What uh, a great fucking actor Barney Rubble was too, you know? It's you, you go, he had the full range of everything, but I'm a huge Barney Rubble fan. So, and of course you had uh, your, your Wilma, your Fred, uh, your, your uh, what, was, uh, what was Barney's wife's name? Uh, was it Betty? Betty? Betty Rubble, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, of course, you had uh, the aforementioned Pebbles, Pebbles and... Bam, 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 bam. You know, so, you had uh, Dino, Mr. Slate, Mr. Slate, uh, down to the, down to the rock quarry. Uh, yeah. uh, by the way, very quickly, Barry, <clears throat> for the benefit of the listening audience, I will now do my impression of Pebbles Flintstone on every episode she ever appeared in the Flintstones. Are you ready? Let's do it. You want a drum roll or you're going to go for it? Uh, no, no, let me uh, do the David Letterman S clearing of the voice. <clears throat> Here we go. David. <laughs> That's like pretty much what she said every episode. That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. So, number five. I know the people. What other are... podcast professional wrestling really? theme offers this? Yeah. No professional wrestling and Pebbles Flintstone. Yeah. You don't get that when you just 
stick nope. to wrestling, Barry. Nope. So, number five, Barry, I'm a fan. I got to say, it's the captain, Captain Crunch. What do you think? Absolutely. So, I, I think, I got to say, I'm talking about uh, pebbles and, and all that. Captain Crunch is definitely right up there for me. I love, and I love every version of Captain Crunch, whether it's original, whether it's got crunch berries, whether it's all crunch berries, whether it's peanut butter. uh, Exactly. Captain Crunch has been doing it right for about 50 years now. Big fan. Absolutely. My only problem with the captain is uh, Captain Crunch. You can definitely account uh, after you're finished eating the bowl of Captain Crunch that you're going to need to go in the bathroom, do a little uh, picking of the teeth because that (laughs) shit sticks right to the top of your teeth every single time. Barry number four. It's Fruit Loops. Higher than Fruity Pebbles. What do you think? Yeah, so they what they got going for him, they got a a, a toucan bird, right? Uh, yeah, a toucan a, Sam. Toucan Sam. Yeah, you know, I don't. again, I don't. It, to me, it's a little, eh. I'd rather have the Fruity Pebbles any day of the week. Again, I think the flavor's a little bit stronger, which is why. But that being said, you know, look, it, this is probably one of the most popular cereals in the country, if not the most popular. So I understand. I get it. Number three, Barry, tell me if you know what cereal out there is great. From Battle Creek, Michigan, weighing 280 pounds, it's Tony the Tiger talking about Frosted Flakes, which was my late father's favorite cereal by far. A bowl Shout out of, to Barry's dad. Yes, sir. A, a bowl of uh, the man. God bless my father. And I could go. We could do a whole podcast on our dads at some point, Jeff. But sure. My dad would wake up. My dad had to be at work eight o'clock every morning. He would wake up as the sun was coming up around six where did, o'clock. Where did your dad work again? He worked at Levitt. He was the general. Oh, that's right. You did tell us that. Levitt's furniture for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, even longer. And he would wake up every morning. He would get his newspaper and he would sit down with black coffee and a bowl of Tony the Tiger of Frosted Flakes, read the newspaper, and then he would wake me up for me to go to school. But he'd already been awake for like an hour, an hour and a half. So, uh, yeah, that was his favorite. It's a, you know, it's a good cereal. It, it's probably not as robust as what I'm looking for when it comes to cereal, but but it's it's good. It's a quality product, I think. I will say that Frosted Flakes are best for about thirty seconds. I have to put the milk on. There you go. And they're still crunching, and they, you're getting that sugar rush. And then those flakes kind of start to flatten out a little bit, kind of like your uh, your raisin brand does uh, when Ugh. you first put the, put the milk in that. Uh, Lou, join us for one second. Uh, Lou chiming with a little Intel Berry, right. and that was the, the voice of Tony the Tiger was who? Well, the successor to the voice of Tony the Tiger, the first one was late great Thurl Ravenscroft. Who Lou is from? Where is he from? We know him from something else, right? Uh, He's Wales. From- well, <laughs> there it is. Wales makes it. So he was the voice in the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was, I, I guess, the what do they call him? The, he was the gatekeeper or something. But he was essentially the narrator of the ride of the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Are, are you sure it was him or was it Paul Freeze who was the I, voice? I know Thurl Ravenscroft did, a, you know, a whole bunch of baritone and bass singing for all types of Disney projects. Right. I, I would defer to you because you're I, you're rarely ever wrong, Lou. So and I'm wrong all the time. So I would defer to you. But for whatever reason, I thought Thurl Ravenscroft was actually the guy that was doing the uh, the narrating. I think he, but you might be right because I do think where the they have the busts that are singing. Yeah, he's one of those busts, right? Yeah, and he was also the singing voice in the the Grinch that stole Christmas special. You're a mean one, Mister Grinch. You have termites in your smile. Yes. So again, uh, we're not we're not just talking pebbles, Flintstone. Here, <laughs> right, exactly. You won't get this anywhere else. That's exactly. Right. But uh, after Thurl Ravenscroft uh, shuffled off this mortal coil, <laughs> wrestling link, the voice of Tony the Tiger was assumed by the late great Stagger Lee Marshall of AWA right. and WCW fame. Well, yeah. that's some uh, pretty good information there, Lou. We appreciate it. You bet. So, so Barry, before we move on, because we just started talking about uh, <sighs> the haunted uh, mansion there at uh, Disney World, sure. did you ever hear the story, or was it just urban legend that, y- you know the part where the ride kind of circles around and you see the woman in the glass ball and she's sitting there yes. narrating it? Madam, Madam Leota. 
is that's the one. Yes, not yes. no relation to Mike Leota, I'm sure. But um, there was always the rumor, the story that some kid had gotten off the ride at that point to try to get the glass ball with a woman's face in it, had fallen through and it died. Had you ever heard that story? I don't think I, I, I've heard a lot of the, uh, lots of, you know, cause the old yeah. thing was that nobody ever died on the grounds of the magic kingdom. They literally well, would drive you off the grounds. Yeah, well, uh, and do you know the story? So, and I'm sure this is what everybody wants to hear right now. So Disney, I guess, incorporated their own emergency system and it's called the Reedy Creek improvement district. So they essentially created their own city, even though it's in Kissimmee, meaning they don't have to report these accidents to any out. So they're not where the FDA, the, the, is it the FDA? The uh, food and agricultural is what it is. They actually will go and inspect rides with Disney. They don't have access. Disney actually has a private company doing that for them. So people have died at Disney. However, it doesn't have to be reported. Hmm. Yes. A little shady, right? A little uh, kinda, shady. Keep that in mind next time you decide to take yeah. the family to Disney. Because you're yeah. kind of on your own once you get on one of those rides. Number two, Barry. Oh, this is a favorite of mine. Lucky Charms. They're magically delicious. Yeah, they're good, too. And again, much like uh, Toucan Sam. And uh, yeah, th these are staples of our youth. And these are what these uh, these sugary cereals were all about. So they're good. They are magically delicious. I like those little marshmallow things they get in there that seem to melt in your mouth. That's a, it's a nice cereal. It's dessert. You know, it's not exactly. to me. It's not a breakfast. product. So number yeah. one, Barry, I got to dispute this. All right. And maybe I'm just old school. Maybe you're going to tell me that you like this cereal. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Is that really the best cereal out there, Barry? No, and I, I'm so grateful you didn't say grape nuts. That's what I was <laughs> fucking. I'm saying you're going to ever eat a pine cone. Boy, I'm really showing my age when I remember yeah. that commercial. Yeah, but and then they used to. Was it Jim Fix? Remember Jim Fix? Yeah, the guy that and, did the uh, the the running book. Uh, yeah, and then and then and died then, running. Yeah, <laughs> so he was and he was he was the spokesman after Yule Gibbons for for grape nuts and about this grape nuts lead to a healthier heart, et cetera, et cetera. And he was a he was a marathon runner, yeah. and then he, at like 50 years old, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Go While he was running a marathon, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the height of irony. So, no, yeah. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, not a huge fan, Barry. No, Have you ever tried it? I have. It's all right. I'm not big on cinnamon cereals and stuff like that. So yeah, it's not up my alley. That's hard to believe. That's number one though of all the cereals out there. Yeah, I I, I would have gone uh, with uh, another product that uh, I don't know. I just uh, I kind of dispute the findings here on this particular poll. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. So I I mentioned a little bit earlier about the breakfast cereal bars with the marshmallows and shit. Do you ever eat any of those? Or ha I'm, sure, I'm assuming you have eaten those. I've though. eaten, uh, I think I, well, the wife occasionally will make the Rice Krispies uh, treats sure. and stuff like that. But she makes them like homemade. Uh, I have tried, God, I can't think of the name. They're the ones, uh, it's not Reese's, but they, they make them, they're, the, you know, you get some nutritional value out of, out of value out of it. It's not just like eating a candy bar. You're getting uh, X amount of vitamins. You're getting some, you know, uh, different supplements. But uh, it's not Reese's. But I, I have had. I've tried a few of them. What do you think of them? So I actually, I actually prefer that over cereal. And again, I don't eat that for breakfast. But if Mrs. Bowdrin is making you Rice Krispie treats, have her substitute the fruity pebbles or cocoa pebbles, and you're going to be in for something. I mean, they're they're spectacular. Barry, another fun, jam-packed episode, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Are you about ready for the old go-home? That, Jeff, or I would just continue to record. This is my. This is the highlight of the week. So if we can do this. Well, it goes without saying. Six hours, a, you know, I, I love it. It's, uh, did, but I did, guess. I, I, I will ask you a couple of questions about the Fan Fest. Okay. That hasn't happened at the time we recorded this yet. Did, did Ozzy have a good time? Ozzy had the best time. And I've already, oh, Ozzy looking at me right now. So Ozzy's big thing is. He tolerates other dogs. He doesn't necessarily care too much, but he loves attention from people. So the fact that there was 150 fans who knew who he was calling his name, he had the best time ever, Jeff. So I'm going to ask you, who took more photos over the weekend, you, Ricky Morton, or Ozzy? 
Oh, I'm out first off. So it definitely comes down to Ricky Morton or Ozzy. I think it's Ozzy because Ozzy was around for four days. Uh, and a, a lot of our groups stuck around for a couple of days. Ricky Morton was in and out. I think Ozzy is the clear winner of uh, of having the most photos taken over this past Did weekend. any of the people coming to the Fan Fest bring any of their bitches, and by that, <laughs> I mean their female dog, uh, to uh, perhaps do a little uh, meet and greet with Oz, huh? Yeah, he's a celebrity. He's a celebrity. I wish that would have happened. I don't think that happened, though, Jeff. Well, if only the event had taken place at the Admiral Benbow Inn in Tennessee, then Ozzy would for sure get laid. What do you think? <laughs> Jeff, we all would have gotten laid. I would have gotten laid this week. Oh, QZ, QZ on that. So on yes. that note, I will mention that Breaking Kayfabe of Valdron and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, for Barry Rose, for Ozzy, Ozzy, the effing man at the Fan Fest. <laughs> I am your host, Jeff Bowdrin, and we will see you next week. Lou, we are out. Bye.